August 18, 2000, New South Wales, Australia. A 48-year-old man sleeps peacefully in his bed as if it were any other night, but this would not be any other night. Soon it would become extraordinary as a man slipped through his bedroom window with one objective, murder. In the following case, we will investigate a chain of events that led not only to this killing, but the events that preceded and followed it. The murder of Jack Van Crevel would turn out to be just one act of extreme violence in a long list of evil deeds. Welcome to the Beyond Evil podcast, where we bring you the most compelling true crime cases from all over the world. Some are disturbing, some are baffling, and others are simply evil. Before we begin, we would like to send our sincere condolences to all of the victims in this case who had the unfortunate experience of meeting the Van Crevel family. East Albury, New South Wales, Australia, a very small rural town almost in the middle of nowhere. With a population of around 6,500 people, it is a relatively tight-knit community where everybody knows everybody else. This small town was the home to the Van Crevel Valera family. Belinda Van Crevel, 20 years old at the time of her father's murder, and her brother, Mark Valera. Now we must certainly not forget Mark's best friend, Keith Schreiber. All of these individuals will play vital roles in this case. The brother and sister had been raised by their father in Wollongong, south of Sydney, after their mother had walked out when Belinda and Mark were just two and three years old, respectively. The children didn't have a good upbringing with their father. Jack Van Crevel was an aggressive man, abusive to his children, and rarely acted anything like a parent throughout their childhoods. This left the pair with a growing resentment and hatred towards him from a young age, which only festered and grew stronger as they matured. Belinda has told the story of how her father would beat her every day without fail, how she and her brother lived in fear of one day not waking up as the result of the constant violence they had suffered. For any child, their upbringing shapes who they are and who they will become and how they will live their lives as they get older. The importance of a good upbringing may never have been demonstrated more clearly than in this case. There isn't one specific crime to bring you into this case. It is a series of crimes that all play their part in this ongoing tale of evil. The first of those, at least the first that anyone knows about, took place on the 12th of June, 1998 in Wollongong. 63-year-old David O'Hearn, who had been a shopkeeper in the area, failed to show up for work one day. His family decided to go to his Albion Park home to check on him. What they saw would stay with them for the rest of their lives. The body of Mr. O'Hearn had been laid out, limbs stretched out across the living room floor. His head had been completely separated from his body, his hands cut off and used as templates to draw around on the walls, and all of his internal organs had been removed. To say the least, this was no ordinary murder, and the police knew it. His hands had been placed on the arms of the chair as if there was an invisible person sitting there. During the disemboweling, all of his insides had been placed on a silver tray and laid out next to the corpse. Detective Inspector Peter Woods said, It was a scene I'd never encountered in all my years in the police force. 
The body had been so badly disfigured it was impossible for the pathologist to determine an exact cause of death. It was assumed that a broken decanter found near the body was used to kill Mr. O'Hearn, but given the suffering he must have gone through, no one will really know what finally put this man out of his misery. His head was later found in a kitchen sink and had been used as a template as well, leaned against the living room walls where a pentagram and inverted crucifix had been drawn. The cuts around the wrist, neck, and chest had been made very precisely. Police immediately believed this to be some kind of ritual killing, something you might associate with a satanic cult. But this wasn't the only murder that took place in the same area around the same time. Just two weeks later, another body was discovered, this time the 26th of June. This belonged to Frank Arkell. Arkell was a former Lord Mayor of Wollongong and also a former member of the New South Wales State Parliament. The M.O. was very similar to that of David O'Hearn. Mr. Arkell's skull had been caved in using a bedside lamp. The electrical cord had been wrapped tightly around his neck to strangle him to death. As with the David O'Hearn case, injuries had been sustained post-death, but not the disembowelment that we saw with Mr. O'Hearn. This time, the killer had made lacerations around the chest but had not removed any of the organs. Pins, however, had been stuck through the victim's eyes and cheeks. The two cases had the same satanic undertones, but the two men were very different. Mr. O'Hearn was a well-liked family man who ran his own business and seemingly had no enemies. But Mr. Arkell was very different. Firstly, he had held public office in various capacities, but more importantly, he had recently been investigated in connection to child pornography and pedophilia. He had been acquitted, but authorities believed him to be guilty and were still pursuing cases around him. Nobody can condone vigilantism, but the despicable crimes he was being investigated for certainly made him a target. After some door-to-door -door inquiries, the police didn't take too long to get a lead. Guess who lived just a few doors away from David O'Hearn? That's right, Mark Valera and his best friend, Keith Schreiber. Neighbors had reported seeing strange activities from the house and believed the two to be carrying out rituals as part of their membership in a satanic cult. Of course, police can't just take someone's word for it, so they visited the two men shortly after. As police entered the young men's home, they immediately spotted strange drawings around the house and on the men's possessions. The drawings included strange symbols and crucifixes, which matched those found at the murder scenes of both David and Frank. Law enforcement immediately believed that Keith and Mark had been involved in the murders in some capacity, but there was a problem. Just finding a few drawings is not hard evidence, and as of yet, no DNA had been found, so there weren't any grounds to arrest or charge them with anything. Amazingly, despite the horrific murder scenes, it seemed that whoever committed the crimes had been pretty careful not to leave any evidence lying around. That is, until police finally found something they could use. The O'Hearn crime scene had little evidence. There were fingerprints, though but at this point they couldn't be matched to anyone. That is, until a thorough search of the scene and the surrounding grounds at the Frank Arkell murder, police discovered a pair of blood-soaked pants and a pair of boots. After obtaining DNA and fingerprints from the items, they were able to get a positive match with Mark Valera. An ex-girlfriend of Valera's had also come forward to speak to police about the strange beliefs that he held and said that he owned a pair of boots and pants exactly like the ones that were found. 
Keith Schreiber was also brought in, but it was quickly established that he couldn't have committed the murders because he was working away at the time and had a cast-iron alibi. Police obtained an arrest warrant for Valera very quickly, and they were literally about to leave the station to go make the arrest when he unexpectedly saved them the trouble. Valera strolled into the Wollongong police station and he made a full confession. When asked why he targeted the two men, Valera said, I think Mr. O'Hearn was a homosexual. He propositioned me a while ago. Killing him was pretty random, though. My dad had abused me as a child, and to see another older guy coming on to me, a 19-year-old, it seemed wrong and reminded me of my dad. Frank Arkell was a very, very horrible man. He tried to come on to me once as well, but I told him to go away. I'm not sorry for killing him. He was a dangerous pedophile. Mark Valera went on trial in July of 2000 and amazingly pled not guilty to the murders, instead alleging manslaughter. In court, the defense argued that Valera had lost control because of his turbulent childhood and the abuse he had received at the hands of his father. Unfortunately for the defense, but unsurprisingly, this was widely rejected by the judge and jury. Judge Tim Studdert accepted that Valera had been beaten by his father, but rejected any notion that he had been sexually abused. Valera was sentenced to two whole-life terms and became the youngest person in Australian history to be held in Supermax, a prison used only for the most serious and dangerous offenders, and his papers were stamped with the words, Never to be released. Police also suspected Valera of a third murder, that of Trevor Parkin, who had been killed using a bowling ball and had also been dismembered back in 1997. But unable to prove any links between O'Hearn, Arkell, Parkin, and Valera, the investigation had to be dropped. But the suspicions of police never went away, until, eventually, a male prostitute called Christopher Robinson was charged with the murder, but law enforcement always suspected that Valera had some involvement. Belinda Van Crevel had spent her entire life so far surrounded by violence. She had been brought up, and we use that term loosely, by a man who had consistently beaten her. She watched as her brother was also beaten and lived in fear all the time. Now her Satan-worshipping brother was a double murderer. With surroundings like this, she was always going to find it difficult to lead a normal, law-abiding life. Understandably, both siblings resented their father immensely, who wouldn't have negative feelings to someone who had beaten them throughout their entire childhoods. It cannot be overstated how much Belinda looked up to her brother. He was her idol. She saw him as the only good person in her life, no matter what crimes he may have committed. But one part of Mark's trial flipped a switch in Belinda's head, one that she would never be able to turn off. Of course, she knew about the beatings, but the one thing she had never heard before was Mark's accusations of sexual abuse by their father, and what's more, she would never forget it. Let's fast forward a few years. Mark was now several years into his double-life sentence, and on the outside, Belinda had now entered into a relationship with Mark's best friend, Keith Schreiber. She was still living with her father because she had no place else to go, and had also recently become a mother herself. Despite her change in circumstances, though, her lingering hatred and resentment of her father had not left her. It was brewing up inside of her like a dormant volcano waiting to erupt. It wasn't clear whether Belinda actually loved Keith or if she was using him as a means to an end. 
She was a good-looking young woman who certainly had power and influence over men, more specifically over Keith Schreiber. Belinda used their time together to constantly remind Keith of how her father had treated not just her, but his best friend Mark as well. She repeatedly told him that it was her father's fault Mark was in prison and that he needed a taste of his own medicine. When the time was right and Belinda felt that she had gotten into Keith's head enough, she would strike. On August the 18th, 2000, the time had come. In the early morning hours, Keith Schreiber arrived at the home of Jack Van Crevel. Slowly walking up the stony driveway, axe in hand, he quietly slipped through a window that had been left open. Keith wanted to kill Jack as he slept, but it didn't quite go as planned. Jack Van Crevel woke up and began to fight back. A bloody brawl ensued. 48-year-old Jack tried to save himself against the axe that was being swung relentlessly by Schreiber, eventually overpowering him. Mr. Van Crevel suffered 25 separate blows from the axe and a further 16 stab wounds made by a knife that Keith Schreiber had brought with him. In case you hadn't guessed, Belinda was the one who left the window open for Keith. She had also left the axe just outside of the property for him to pick up before entering the home. Belinda and her four-year-old daughter were in the home at the time of the killing in bed in the next bedroom. They both listened to the attack as Jack Van Crevel was heard screaming and pleading for his life in his final moments. Belinda said afterwards that her daughter was frightened and asked what's happening to Poppy. But instead of getting out of bed, Belinda just covered her daughter's ears and waited for the killing to be complete. It didn't take police very long to work out who their man was, knowing full well the connections between Belinda, Valera, and Schreiber. They arrested Keith within 24 hours. He had little or no intention of hiding what he had done. After a very brief spell of denial, he decided to tell the police everything. He told them how Jack deserved everything he had gotten because he was a pedophile, and how he had done a good deed by ridding the world of him so he would never molest another child again. A common mistake that criminals make is thinking the police are stupid. Well, they're not. They didn't believe for a second that Keith Schreiber would simply take it upon himself to murder Jack Van Crevel. He had never been suspected of anything like this in his past, and they were all too aware of the Van Crevel family dynamics. Keith was refusing to say if he was coerced or convinced by anyone else to commit the murder, but police had their own opinions. Shortly after Keith's confession, Belinda was hauled in for questioning. During her interview, Belinda tried to play the innocent card. She refused to admit to asking Keith to kill her father, but did admit that she wanted him dead. This, of course, isn't enough to convict her of murder personally, but she seemed happy to throw Keith under the bus. He had served his purpose, and now he would serve his time behind bars. Keith Schreiber was sentenced to 16 years for the murder and would not be eligible for parole until he had served at least 12 of those years. But Belinda Van Crevel didn't get away scot-free. She was sentenced to six years for the solicitation of murder. Belinda was released from prison in 2007. She stated she wanted a new life and a fresh start. But for someone who spent their entire life surrounded by violence, some of which she had instigated herself, was this going to be possible? Belinda, it seemed, was keeping to her word. She was staying out of trouble and had even met a new boyfriend shortly after being released. 
Marshall Gould was a carpet salesman who had met Belinda in a rug store in 2008. The two quickly fell in love and had a child together. At first, Belinda failed to tell Marshall about her past. Presumably, she was worried that he might find it off-putting. But suddenly, one day, she approached him with a book in her hand. The book was entitled Bound by Blood. This is a true crime story based entirely on her family. She simply said, read this and ask me anything that's on your mind. Most people would surely have been concerned to learn that their partner had such a checkered past, but Marshall Gould? No, not really. He said, I wasn't too concerned about it. I had a few questions, obviously, but it didn't put me off her. She had only ever been very caring towards me and helped me through a messy divorce. I could only judge her on what I had seen. But Marshall was about to get a more in-depth look into the psyche of Belinda Van Crevel. On what was seemingly a normal day, Belinda flew into an unprovoked rage at her partner. Marshall described how her eyes lost all color and seemingly went entirely black. After striking him a few times, she ran into the kitchen and reemerged quickly with a knife in her hand. She said to him, I'm going to f***ing kill you, Jack. I'm going to f***ing kill you. Marshall was stabbed six times by Belinda in the arms, leg, and neck. Amazingly, though, left on the floor, losing a lot of blood, his life hanging by a thread, he still didn't call emergency services because, in his words, I didn't want her charged. He rang his father, Wayne, to come and collect him. His father rushed him to the hospital. Despite Mr. Gould's wishes, it was now out of his hands. Emergency services are duty-bound to report any violent incidents to the police, and that's exactly what they did. But Mr. Gould was still doing his best to defend Belinda, telling police that he had been mugged by three men who had stabbed him. He said, I didn't want Belinda to get in trouble. I just wanted us to be able to work through our issues on our own. Eventually, Mr. Gould was broken down by police and folded under questioning. He came clean about the whole incident, but also claimed that Belinda was a good person who didn't mean to do what she had done. Interestingly, Belinda was not at the hospital with her partner, though. The next morning, Wayne Gould received a phone call from Belinda when he was sitting at his son's bedside. Belinda asked, Where is Marshall? Wayne replied, He's in the hospital. You stabbed him about ten times, you stupid bitch. Belinda was apparently shocked at this, denying that she had done it saying that she wasn't capable. She did later admit that she woke up in bed with her son and noticed the blood all over the floor and walls, but she sticks to her version of the events that she had no idea what could have happened. The police didn't believe any of the versions of the events either from Marshall or Van Crevel. She was immediately charged with wounding with the intent to cause grievous bodily harm and sentenced to three years. She would not be eligible for parole until she had served at least two of those years. Marshall was seriously devoted to Belinda. Every week he went to the prison to visit her, even wrote a lengthy letter to the judge during the court case, explaining her past and begging for leniency. This could explain why, despite her previous offenses, she was given a fairly light sentence. Despite Marshall's obvious, if not somewhat baffling, devotion to Belinda, the relationship was destined to fail and broke off before Belinda was released from prison. Upon her release, she seemed to have settled down and was trying to make another fresh start. A few years passed and she stayed out of trouble, seemingly embracing the chance at a new life. That is, until June of 2020. 
Van Crevel and a friend called Miss Stanley Smith had been out celebrating the arrest of Belinda's new partner, who had allegedly been abusing her. Drink and drugs all played their part when a brawl broke out between the two women over a joint that apparently wasn't being shared equally. Belinda eventually overpowered Smith and was seen choking her relentlessly with her hands wrapped tightly around her throat. She did let go but then proceeded to punch Smith over and over before bystanders saw the incident and ran over and broke it up. Despite being kept apart, Belinda was not done. She grabbed several ornaments, including ceramic statues and glass candle holders, launching them at Smith, one of which hit her right in the face. Despite facing two more assault charges, Van Crevel was once again handed bail while awaiting trial because her lawyer claimed that she was acting in self-defense. On January 6, 2022, Belinda was 41 years old, but her temper and random outbursts of violence apparently had not left. First, she was charged with the theft of a handbag in a coffee shop. Belinda denied it was theft because someone had left it hanging on a chair unsupervised, a rather strange defense. Then, around the same time, she was charged with assault occasioning actual bodily harm on an 80-year-old pensioner named Ivan Mounchiks. This fresh crime spree of Belinda's could be attributed to one very significant development she had not known about in the past. As we have mentioned, she was extremely loyal to her brother and had stated on many occasions that she wishes that she could do his life sentences for him because he isn't tough enough to last in prison. But during a television interview she gave a couple of years previous, Belinda was presented with a hit list that had been written by her brother inside a copy of a book called The A to Z of Serial Killers. When presented with the book, Belinda said that she was happy to have something that belonged to her brother, something that she could keep as a memento. But upon opening the book, on the inside left cover were written the words, Who Will Be My Number Three? Below the chilling sentence is a rather long list of names that Mark Valera planned to target next. Her eyes drifted slowly down the page, and approximately halfway down the list, she sees her own name in big block capital letters. Belinda tried to remain calm and said that it was sad that her name was there, but that she wasn't concerned. Regardless of her words, it was plain to see in the video that her face changed and her eyes squinted slightly. Whatever she had been in the past or may still be, one thing that could never be questioned was the loyalty to her brother. The level of emotion and the hurt that this betrayal caused is undeniable. After all, Mark was the one constant in her life. They had shared a lot together through their childhoods, supported each other after being beaten by their father. This was a bond that Belinda, at least, saw as unbreakable. But with Mark's hit list, that illusion was now shattered, effectively leaving Belinda completely alone in the world with no one to talk to or rely on. Belinda Van Crevel still lives as a free woman to this day. Following her fight with her so-called friend and the assault on Mr. Mousich, she received again what would be considered a rather light punishment. On November 29th of 2022, she was given a community order forcing her to do 80 hours of community service. As a result, she still walks among the law-abiding citizenry, still presumably capable of random acts of violence. Belinda Van Crevel has been nicknamed Belinda Van Evil in Australia and is widely known for being called the most evil woman in Australia. 
With a rap sheet as long as your arm and having never really shown any remorse for the crimes that she committed, can this woman ever really be trusted by anyone? It is clear that her troubled upbringing and that of her brother certainly played a part in the life that she has chosen to lead. Every time she goes on to commit a crime, it seems to coincide with something or someone reminding her of her past. This, of course, does not excuse her behavior, but she is unquestionably damaged, but to such an extent that she may never be able to recover and lead a law-abiding life. But what is the best answer for law enforcement? Lock her up and throw away the key? For the moment, at least, the criminal justice system seems to be going down the road of rehabilitation, trying to help her and not locking her up for any meaningful length of time. Surely, the latest community order that she was given is a last chance for Belinda before she has the full weight of the law brought down upon her. After all, how long can one person keep reoffending before they are seriously punished? But there are still two major problems. Firstly, when Belinda was sentenced for stabbing Marshall Gould, she told law enforcement she could do the sentence standing on her head. She wasn't afraid of prison. Secondly, by not putting her behind bars, the judicial system is potentially putting law-abiding citizens at risk. Belinda has demonstrated on numerous occasions that she's more than capable of committing violent acts when the mood strikes her. It is difficult to see how she would never reoffend again. Therefore, she poses a present and dangerous threat to the members of the public. Since her community order, she has once again stayed out of trouble. But this recurring theme has happened over and over again with this woman. We must hope and pray that she is a changed person. But then again, can we ever really be sure that her uncontrollable anger isn't just brewing up inside her, screaming to get out once again? We would like to dedicate this podcast to all of the victims of Mark and Belinda Van Crevel. David O'Hearn and Frank Arkell both died innocent men. Despite what Frank Arkell was suspected of, we cannot prejudge what the outcome of any investigation would have been. Jack Van Crevel was certainly no saint and definitely not a good father, but as the result of his daughter's manipulation of Keith Schreiber, he died a painful and bloody death. Keith was released from prison after 12 years of his sentence and has since kept out of trouble and does not associate with anyone from his past. Marshall Gould was also a victim of Belinda's uncontrollable rage, but luckily he survived by not continuing with his relationship. He may have had a very lucky escape and is now getting on with his life far away from Belinda Van Crevel. We should also pay tribute to Belinda's daughter and son. Her daughter was forced to listen to her grandfather being brutally murdered in the next room screaming for his life. At such a young age, surely she will never forget that horrific experience that the vast majority of people should never have to endure, especially not a child. Fortunately, she was taken away from Belinda at a young age and was taken in by a loving family where she still lives to this day, loved and cared for in every possible way. Her son stayed with his dad, Mr. Gould. Naturally, Belinda has no visitation rights, and Mr. Gould is raising him alone. He is well cared for and surely much safer with his father than he would have been with his mother. We hope that all of the victims who are still here to tell their stories are able to put their encounters with the Van Crevels behind them and lead long and happy lives. If you found this story compelling, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And please leave a five-star review if you would like to show your support. 
Also, don't forget to hit the notification bell to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking in the shadows.